Welcome back, listeners. This is episode 10 of Beneath the Armour with me, Nathan Illman. So, if this is your first episode, welcome to the podcast. If you've been with me along for the whole journey, then thanks for listening to other episodes. This episode is another really fantastic one. I've had such a pleasure to meet Dr. Mark Cross. Mark and I discussed anxiety, mental health issues, how to be open and vulnerable as a clinician, doctor, psychologist, the importance of actually showing to people that we're human. So just as a little introduction to who Mark is, I'm taking this directly from his LinkedIn page, so hopefully he won't mind. Dr. Mark Cross is the author of Anxiety, expert advice from a neurotic shrink who's lived with it all his life. Uh, This was a book published in March 2020. Go and check it out. Mark is a psychiatrist with clinical experience of over three decades. He graduated as a doctor in Cape Town, specialised in the UK, and has worked as a specialist in Sydney since 2005. He holds senior conjoint lecturer positions at the universities of New South Wales and Western Sydney. Mark has special interests in sexuality issues, mental health in the workplace, and improving the care and quality of life in people with lived experience and carers. In 2015, he received the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists New South Wales Branch Meritorious Award for his significant contribution to psychiatry. Mark is co-author of Changing Minds, a mental health guide for you, family and friends, published by ABC Books. He is also the lead psychiatrist in the ABC TV, ABC TV series Changing Minds. He's a well-respected speaker on mental health issues, a sane Australia board member, that's a charity, and a passionate advocate on the importance of preventative mental health. He lives with his husband, John. They have two sons and a cat. I had so much fun chatting to Mark. He's so friendly and he's just got such a great story about his own struggles with anxiety and obviously having written a book about it. He's really an amazing role model for me and hopefully you know, other people listening to this will find him really inspiring. I'll let you get stuck into the episode shortly, but a couple of things before I do. Number one, I just want to just shout out again to anybody who feels like they'd like to come on the podcast and have a conversation like the ones that you may have heard in previous episodes. I'm always looking for new people and really interested to have conversations. Or if you know someone who you think would be a great fit for the podcast and may be up for it, then just reach out to me. You can reach me on Twitter at Nathan Illman. You can find me on Facebook. If you just search for my name, you'll find my Facebook business page. You can check out the website and you can get in touch with me via email at nathan at nathanillman.com. And final little shout out. Just want to let you know if you haven't already heard this in previous episodes, I run a free Facebook group that's called Overcoming Self-Doubt for Doctors. And it's kind of like a coaching group where I provide resources every week. It's written articles. It's videos sometimes it's kind of guided audio meditations visualizations so if you're a doctor listening to this and you struggle with confidence in certain areas of your practice you suffer from self-doubt or perhaps imposter syndrome then feel free to sign up to the group you can do so by going to my website www.nathanillman.com and there's a little image on there that you can click and just sign up it's totally free just ask you to put your email details in that's it and you can get free resources every week and you can send me a message if you want to ask me something specific as well. Okay, I hope everyone's doing really well wherever you are listening to this and I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Dr. Mark Cross. So Mark, thank you so much for joining me on Beneath the Armour podcast. Uh, Really, really appreciative of your time this evening. No, it's great to be here. So to kick things off, um, I guess just to provide a bit of context uh, about you know who you are and what you've been up to, where you've come from, can we take a little bit of a walk down memory lane and you know just give us a bit of a, a summary overview of where you were born and kind of maybe let's just sort of start with your professional journey to how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I am South African. Um, the accent gives that away rather. Mm-hmm. So, hey, I was born in the 60s, right? So I'm 56 this year, so a bit of a long history there. So I'll start <laughs> with my working life. So I studied at the University of Cape Town, 
and I graduated in 1990 and then did my house job at the university uh, at, uh, in East London, South Africa, at uh, this lovely district hospital. And uh, it's a bit of a joke because I didn't have a CV then, so we didn't write CVs in South Africa. My father actually played golf with the medical superintendent and they wanted local boys, so I got the job and <laughs> went and went to uh, literally. And then after that, I went straight into psychiatry and my then supervisor was 300 miles away in the local mental hospital. So I learned from the nurses and just had to learn on the on the job, as it were, mm-hmm. you know, a bit of common sense. And that's why I'm so practical, really. And at the same time, of course, 1990 was when Nelson Mandela was released. So this hospital was built in the height of the apartheid era, so it had two separate entrances and wings that didn't actually mingle. So it was the black mm-hmm. side and the white side. And I'm opened the war to all races for the first time when I took over as the junior psychiatry, I don't know, medical officer. So that was quite amazing. And then for various reasons, including my sexuality, I left. And it was hard for me because I was pretty committed to South Africa and all my family are there. They're still there. And I went over to England and hey, I had a grand, gay old time in my 20s. It was wonderful going to London, making wonderful friends. And I trained there and became a consultant psychiatrist in 2001 and worked in the East London um, network. So the similar, you know, area health service is called, as you probably know, mental health service there or East London. What were they called? Trusts. Trusts, yeah. Oh, trusts and so many borders changing. The same here. Anyway, I've lived through quite a few of those. I met John, my husband, in 2001, and we loved London. He was a dancer. He joined. He, I know you didn't ask me about him, but it's sort of linked to why I moved. I have no idea why we moved to, to South Africa, to Australia, but he became a gym instructor. He was working in Mayfair Gym. It was great. I won a couple of NHS awards. I was working HIV psychiatry and emergency psychiatry. I still, to this day, actually don't know why we moved. We we done our <laughs> flat up. We had a lot. We had a lovely time. But I suppose also leaving London on a high is a good way to leave it, right? And I turned forty. He turned thirty, and we literally packed up our bags via South Africa. Great six week holiday. And we landed in Australia, August 2005. And I took up a position of consultation liaison director at Liverpool Hospital, so southwest Sydney. It's quite funny for those of you who don't know Sydney, southwest Sydney is way inland. And I remember we were living in Potts Point in Sydney and I took a train out and I kept on looking at my watch. And it took about an hour to get there. And in my interview with 12 professionals sitting around the table, and they asked why I came to Sydney. I went, well, I thought it was for the beach, but this is <laughs> nowhere, nowhere near anywhere I can recognize. Anyway, I got the job anyway. But uh, and then I was head of department, head of, well, medical head of department, clinical director from 2006 to 2014. And that's when I first did Changing Minds. So my best friend, Alison Black, produced that. And it was amazing. It was when cameras were allowed into the wards for the first time ever on Australian television. And that made me a little bit of a household name in terms of my work it was incredible. And then we did a second series uh, the next year when I was, I'd moved to the youth ward in Campbelltown. But then I was dipping my toe in private practice. And then I wrote a book. And then I left the public service after ironically being awarded a, an award for public health. But we won't go there right now. You know, I'm very committed to public health. But part of my private journey was also being about myself. And I am very open about who I am. And that's that's incredible being in private because people can choose to come and see me. And it hasn't, you know, it hasn't done anything bad to my career. I've had to close my book. So I'm I'm pretty busy. Um, And that's where I am at the moment. So I'm at the Northside Group. Uh, in Cremorne and Campbelltown MacArthur Clinic, where I work now. Mm-hmm. Thanks. And I guess um, 
you know, just to sort of paint a picture to people about what day to day life looks like. I know just, just before we were talking about, you know, I suppose you've got quite a full day. You, you've got this session with me. You've got a meeting later. Are your days always that busy? Like what is a typical day for you? It is interesting because, of course, you know, part of part of having anxiety is always overcompensating. And I've been doing that for so long now. And my family have gone, for goodness sake, just say no. So I say no with a small N now. But I've really, you know, when you talk about COVID, and it's, it's very interesting, I've had a very good time basically in my career plus slowing down. So... I think the people who found it really harder are the younger people. I'm at a very good stage in my career and life where I've, a- I've been able to do telehealth. The only thing that I've really been upset by in the last year is the fact I haven't seen my parents. And, and you know, I was mm-hmm. on Australian story earlier last year with five, five Australians talking about COVID and uh, I was talking about anxiety. And the director asked me what I thought was the worst bit of COVID. And I, I got quite tearful and I went, I may never see my parents alive again, you know, they're in another country and, and you'll, you'll relate to that. I mean, I'm, well, we haven't asked about your family, but Jesus, you know, that's one thing that's been really difficult. But then mm-hmm. same with you. I'm sure I chose to come here. We chose to come here. We've got sons. We've got family. We've got life, a life here. I have been sick for 14 months. I've focused on close friends, family, doing my work. Telehealth, as you say, I have a busy day, but you know, I don't, I didn't start till 10. I, we wake up, have coffee, go for a walk, sort my day out. It's wonderful having a bit of time in the morning to just not rush because I'm always rushing. And then mm-hmm. I'm a bad driver. I must just tell you, I'm an aggressive driver. That's <laughs> London driving me. And that's one thing that my friends all roll their eyes about, right? But it's because I'm always late. My time management sucks. It always has. Mm-hmm. So this telehealth, has just enabled me to do all these things and even talk to you now, it's great, and then have dinner and then I've got a board meeting. Sure, but at 8.30 when I'm finished, I switch off the computer and I go to bed. You know, I watch a, a program or something um, and it's it's actually quite a nice way of working, right? So I'll answer that in a very roundabout way, but my days are busy. And, of course, in private practice, and I wrote about this in the book you mentioned earlier, you know, I see 50 to 70 patients a week. It's not as if I've got time to play golf. I mean, everyone has this weird idea about private health. And I did coming from England. You know, I don't, I, I keep on saying, I don't know about you, but you're from England too, right? Mm-hmm. I never had private health in England. We never needed it. And yeah. so it was really weird coming here and needing to take private health cover. I didn't for the first year. I paid full tax. People said, Mark, you need the tax cover, or whatever. I didn't even know. I hardly use it. Um, but of course I work in the, in the system now and it, it, and it's much more symbiotic with our general systems here, the public systems than in England, I have to say. So, um, but it's still boom, boom, boom. It's build, it's billable hours. So mm-hmm. you don't earn money in private un- unless you're seeing someone. And so yeah. there's not much time to have a little chat with the nurses, you know, mm-hmm. with coffee. And I'm very good with a team approach. In fact, I'm now medical, clinical medical. I'm luckily you can edit. I'm sorry. The junior. Um, oh my God. I can't even talk. And I, um, <laughs> I need another coffee. I'm the deputy medical superintendent across both sites, which means I do a lot of the inpatient work. Um, and part of that is salaried. So I, I enjoy that. I really do. I'm not alone sole trader as it were i've never been I, i'd never be able to just set up practice on my own i'd never mm-hmm. i'm too much you enjoy the person. enjoy the teamwork i enjoy the teamwork and just talking to someone and going to work and even in covid when i've said telehealth we haven't had telehealth for inpatients so we've had to go in i i, I pulled out of the one clinic and just focused on um Cremorne during that time and we all had to adjust right and so twice a week you go in. So I did have the interaction then. So I think that that balance helped. Yeah, for sure. I think it can be quite isolating if you're just doing telehealth from home and, uh, you know, as, as a therapist or psychiatrist or, uh, you know, any healthcare professional, I think just solidly without having any interaction with the team. Um, I've luckily been going back in actually to the, the clinic recently and having some interaction with some admin staff, support staff, which has been really helpful. Um, 
But yeah, kind of going back to what you're saying about COVID, um, I that really resonates with me. It's, yeah, it's been it's been tough. It's but I've been very grateful for all of the luxuries I have here. But yeah, the thing about parents definitely like whilst in the past six months, my dad had a minor stroke. That was really difficult to not be able to you know see him and support him uh, in person. So. We're, we're, we're sort of privileged. I like, I like to try and be grateful about what we do have. And then, you know, that's one of the main the main challenges, isn't it? Mark, I'd like to just go back to something you said around, you know, the fact that you've been open about anxiety and, you know, mental health, and that hasn't impacted the, the work that you do or the, the amount of work that you've got with respect to, to patients, clients. Something I was really curious to hear about is, you know, when you started to open up more about your own journey with anxiety and how it affects you, what you started to notice for, with respect to, when, you know, whether patients started to, you know, approach you and actually ask you about your personal life and also your professional colleagues. You know, what what did people start to say about that, if anything? What were, what were the kind of conversations people were having with you about that? It's interesting, actually. It hasn't been easy, right? As you, as you know, I, I'm, I actually gave a speech at the, um, the media launch of the Australian Mental Health Prize. I was asked to give a talk. It was a bit of a poison chalice as to why I left the public system and I was burnt out. So, you know, it's not all been rosy. It's been hard work and then started acknowledging more my own issues. And a professor of psychiatry I'm fairly friendly with, actually, came up to me afterwards and said, Mark, you're very brave for being so open. And on the one hand, I thought, that's nice. And the other, Nathan, I must say, I got a little bit pissed off. Mm. I I find it so frustrating. That's not brave. You know, on one level, we should all be open and be able to be open. But I also, on on, on one hand, I'm really anxious about it because that's part of my personality and, and, and thinking about actually I still see it as a weakness in some respects because of how I, I was trained and I find it easier now to talk about my sexuality and trust me that took decades it's not exactly the most easy thing at all than actually mm-hmm. being a clinician with what is really a mental health issue and then, on the one hand, though, as you'll know how the ruminative, anxious mind works, I go, oh, my God, people probably think I'm a fraud because I'm really uh, – I do well in my career and they never see me get that anxious and maybe they think I'm making it all up. So that's constant <laughs> – the constant stuff that goes through my head. And then my yeah. husband goes, just ask them to come speak to me and I'll put them straight. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? That that kind of because um, I get that a bit when I I'm open and vulnerable and stuff, and you know I'll sort of mention that you know like things like imposter syndrome and just still self doubt which shows up all the time, even though I you know I look confident and you know I do feel confident in a lot of areas of my practice and personal life, and you know I try and you know I sort of commit to being open with friends and, and in this kind of situation with the podcast about the fact that I'm human and I struggle with things. But then I have that worry of, you know, when people see me just being confident and doing things, oh, maybe they're going to think I'm a fraud. It's like the kind of never-ending cycle, isn't it, of our mind? Just That's awful. And then just, you know, just to answer your question, sorry, because I went around the traps a bit, but, okay. you know, most of my colleagues I trained, actually, this is, I'm starting to feel old now, uh, they've come through the ranks, they were registrars attached to me in the in the past and we've got great relationships especially in Campbelltown and they they're very they're very pleased that I you know they 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 think it's great that I've done that and they're very supportive and my patients like the fact that I'm open and I will still have boundaries obviously people get confused about that boundaries you can still have boundaries still have confidentiality but I treat my friends 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 we talk about things I mean I Everyone talks to me from all walks of life and all aspects of my personal and work life. You know, I talk about personal, I talk about work, personal life balance because especially as a doctor, you know, it's so much part of who I am as a person. You can't really separate all these things that much. And why should we? Why should we have to? So in a way, as long as you don't have, as long as you're professional, you still very clear about what you're doing in a peer-reviewed sort of way, I'm very happy to share of myself. And 
before I was so open, if somebody asked me directly about something, and it was always only women who were in a manic episode about my sexuality, it was very interesting. Some people, a couple of people made comments, right? But never directly. It's, it's amazing. And of course, I just say yes. And then that hugged me. And in fact, being open about my sexuality has enabled me to treat a lot of women who are marching today, the ones with complex PTSD who've been sexually assaulted from either an early age onwards or in other parts of their lives. And they trust me as a gay man. And, and that's been, that's been an incredible boom actually to my um and that's what caught my anxiety but of course that has been a cause of a lot of my anxiety so it's so linked with me but with the anxiety people know that i get it and especially when i'm talking about sleep oh my god i'm like this expert on sleep because i've dealt with this issue all my life and people really value that can you give us a, a recent example of like another, you know, an interaction you've had with a, a patient where you, just, you know, you're willing to disclose something about your, your, your personal life for the, you know, for the benefit of the patient? Like maybe if it was a sleep example or something. Well, I, again, that's fine. We just had Mardi Gras, right? So I'm going back to the sexuality stuff, um, and, sure. and that's where the telehealth has also been very helpful because I'm specialising a lot now a lot more now in the LGBTQ community. And so I see a lot of gay men who know that I'm gay and I'm open. But, but remember, also for, for your listeners, it's not as if I wear the badge or, you know, go in and declare myself all the time. <laughs> it's, it's about the patient's agenda. The person who comes to see me, I'm holding them. I contain them. And, in fact, just as, as an aside, I saw one GP, actually, who... I can't, he had lots of issues and work related stuff and he wanted me to write a report and his sexuality was a big thing for him. He's an Asian from an Asian background and it was a huge thing. And over a year and a half, we talked about him being more accepting and it was great. And then he wanted me to write this report and I was hesitant because I hate reports anyway. And it was medical legal stuff I don't like doing. And he called me homophobic. And so oh, gosh. I said, I said, do you, do you know, you know, cause I may, I gave hints or, you know, if you look, you look me up on the internet, it's quite clear. I'm going, well, yeah. he apologized the next session because he was angry and, and going through his own stuff. But that just gives you an example. It's just, it wasn't relevant and I was doing more psychodynamic work with him. So I didn't feel that it was something that I should share. With other gay men, I share, and then they don't feel guilty about talking about grinder, for instance, which is a which is basically a sex app, yeah. and they, they find it really hard to talk about their relationship difficulties and what they're doing. They leave that out. They leave it out with other therapists. And and one was just you just laughed. He said, "I can't believe you know what that is." I said, "I'm a gay man. I don't use it, but." I don't, I know about all these things because all my patients tell me about it and my friends tell me about it. So that's yeah. one thing. And with the sleep and anxiety, and I'm always talking about yoga and doing this. And then the person will look at me and one of my patients recently, I talk about self stigma and she went, um, so how's that working for you, Mark? As she crossed her arms. So, you know, my patients give as good as they get. Um, and so <laughs> that's, and that's a, a lovely interaction. And I've used it as a means of engaging someone. And I think people like to hear that somebody they're seeing knows and understands. Because, again, a lot of people you see, I'm sure, and I have, they say, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm going through. And on one level, they're right. Because yeah. it's their individual stuff they're going through one can't fully understand but if unless you've really gone through something you don't fully understand it you can relate to it as best you can yeah i agree i think there are certain life experiences that you, there's absolutely no way you can truly understand but you know of course we try as professionals don't we to empathize by putting ourselves in that person's shoes and of course we've all experienced emotions the full palette of emotions and i think when i'm working with people i you know, try and put myself in the in the seat of shame or the seat of guilt or anger or whatever it is that they're experiencing. And I think that helps me um, 
take the perspective and empathize more with people. And I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that disclosure, self-disclosure about stuff is incredibly powerful and helpful. Um, it, it was something that I was not encouraged to do during my clinical training to begin with, but there were certain supervisors and other colleagues, peers that I had interactions with who helped me kind of realize that actually it was beneficial um, within the work I was doing. I think, like you said, it's, you know, it's not just about, um, there's about, there's got to be boundaries, right? We've got to, we've got to use it in a kind of way that's going to be helpful for the person we're working with. Um, but certainly it's, it's an incredibly powerful tool to show that you're a human. Yes. And that you shouldn't be, I don't know, it shouldn't be held against you. Uh, you know, it's the psychopaths and the narcissists that do most damage in our profession, not the people who, openly disclose mental health issues because yeah. they've got self-reflection insight and they and they go for treatment and they you know they work on their own stuff whilst they're practicing and that just makes you a more empathic compassionate kind gentle person absolutely so um i actually had an experience earlier today there's a, a doctor that i'm working with who was sort of talking about um how hard it is to actually be open about sort of social anxiety that he's been experiencing in the particular uh, organizational context. The college said it's, it's going to look very bad for him that the word might get spread around if people know that he is sort of being open, that he experiences anxiety and people might lose confidence in, in him. Um, and I, I guess I had a question for you around, I mean, I suppose, I suppose firstly, just your experience within medicine and maybe psychiatry of people's willingness to be open about their mental health difficulties. Uh, um, you're already shaking your head. What the barriers are and, and maybe for you, given your experience, you know, your 30 plus years experience, um, what, what you think could be helpful in, in kind of, um, working through those barriers? You know, people don't understand that our professions, and certainly the medical profession, is a trade. And as in all trades, you have older bullies, you get taught by shaming, and it's not, you know, there's, there's been some awful examples in medicine. And why do you think our young still kill themselves? You know, between, it's that dreadful time between being a medical student and a medical practitioner, and that's called our internship, our house office a year, right, for your listeners. And now it's two years because of working time directives. You can no longer work 136-hour weeks like sometimes I had to in my house job, although we didn't have paperwork to worry about then. It was great. So the suicide rate at this level is statistically huge. And women more likely than men. There's still all these mm. gender issues in my profession. And really, it's at my, so to answer your question, and I've been thinking about this a lot, it's at my level that we have to be reflective and change. Because if change doesn't come from the top, you know, a revolution happens, but it, change doesn't come from the top. It's not meaningful. We have to treat those we view as junior or those, you know, still training much more differently than we do. And it's still a problem. I still, I treat doctors and, and I, I treat two interns at the moment who come up with the same shit that I dealt with or actually I, I had a great, a great inter internship. We, we didn't have any psychopaths training us, but in that time you would have thought things have shifted or changed. And sometimes I think, they haven't. And, you know, the, wor the worst ones, the worst ones to the interns are the registrars. So, you know, the next one up the greasy totem pole. And it, it, <laughs> really, it, really, it really upsets and, and irks me. Um, and and we, need to, we really need to shift that culture. And there's been a lot of talk and chatter about this. And that's the one good thing about social media, right? We can't ignore that. I've got a friend... In Melbourne, actually, Dr. Helen Schultz, she, she wrote, she wrote one of the narratives of my book on anxiety. She's a psychiatrist. She treats doctors. She runs a clinic in Melbourne that is completely oversubscribed. 
and it's and it's is, is this just for doctors? Just for doctors. Yeah. And she treats other people as doctor hours a service, and she goes, "Market's completely full. I'm turning people away. The need is so great. There's so much trauma, actually. You know, tra- trauma. Some people think it's an overused word. Well, it's overused because it's e- overexperienced in our society uh, amongst everyone, actually, apart from I don't know, old white men running the country. It's just it's just beggars belief that people aren't more open about this. We don't talk about things. And in fact, I, in my old age, I mean, I, I, it's great. I'm getting back my revolutionary zeal that I had at medical school. I'm not going to go into old age quietly. And I'm, I'm at a, a good part of my career. And one level I go, honestly, I, I try, I said I wasn't going to swear. Well, maybe you know, I just, honestly, I'll say some, fuck it. I really do. I get angry. And, you know, I get mm-hmm. angry because if we don't deal with our stuff, we project it onto the very people we treat and who come to us for help. And this plays out in the emergency departments. And there'll be no surprise to anyone listening to this that the emergency department is not a great place for people with mental health issues. It can mm-hmm. be. It can be much better, but it's not, especially if you have anxiety because public in the public system they go, well, we don't admit people for anxiety. I've had patients told that. Or personality disorder. And person, people with personality disorders need help. And they are treated incredibly badly in our, in our systems. So it's, it's, and I used to get really angry with bullying or people being subjected to bad senior behavior. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, I'll stop there because it's 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 a long conversation, but you know, it's one we yeah well having, yeah well yeah thanks thanks for your thoughts on that and you know I think it's it's amazing already the work that you're that you have done and, and I think you know the world Australia medicine healthcare needs people like yourself who have um, obviously had such an established career and have have gone out and been open about yourself and it's you know it's just it's, it's modeling isn't it it hopefully and hope my aim with this podcast as well you know it's people will listen to this kind of thing and listen to you and and actually feel like okay well maybe i can be a bit more vulnerable and and or do some of that self-reflection access support whatever it is um and and not be a psychopath to their fellow registrars or interns no but also but nathan we didn't say i mean if you don't matter how old are you now i'm 34 you see, that's lovely in, in terms of, well, you know, being 34 is lovely. <laughs> I can't go back there, but, you know, I, as I say, I'm 55 now. And with age comes wisdom and everything. But I, I, and I don't want to do the whole, I wish I'd done things sooner, but it's my journey and I just accept that, right? Um, but it's great that you're doing this at a relatively younger, earlier stage of your life. And kudos to you. And it's wonderful that, People in our profession can do that now because I'll tell you now, when I was 34, not many of my peers would ever even openly talk about anything. I think uh, as a psychologist as well, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate in that obviously a big part of our training, I think there, there is less stigma definitely than, than in, in medicine. So, you know, reflective practice was a big part of our training and people are quite willing to talk about I mean, there was still some guardedness, definitely, um, and some of that armor. Um, but in general, I think, you know, I had a very lovely cohort of people during my doctoral training and had some good friends, and we, we felt we were able to kind of open up about things. So, um, but, but thanks, yeah, it feels like meaningful work um, that I'm doing with this. Um, it is. I mean, it's great. And just, you know, you talk about the armor. We, we're very good at putting the armor up. That's how we trained. You know, don't show weakness, stiff up a lip, never show of yourself, not share, don't share your personal stuff. I go, why? It's, that's rubbish. Why? That's, you know, don't have sex with your patients. That's, you know, management 101. <laughs> People yeah. seem to still get that wrong. So, I mean, just because you share of yourself doesn't mean that you're going to break, you know, all these, you know, very important therapeutic boundaries. People get that so confused. You have to have therapeutic boundaries. You know, I still want to be peer-related and peer-reviewed and, you know, taken seriously. Of course, we, we, we have to. 
have that, you know, one's, one's arm is one thing, one's reputation is another. And, you know, I will obviously guard my reputation, but you can guard your reputation by letting your armor down and being open about yourself. It's about what you do and, you know, do no harm. I took the Hippocratic Oath. It's not that hard. Yeah, and I think people confuse that. They, don't, they, they think that that is going to be harmful in some way to someone. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And if a person's asking you something about your life, yes, of course, we talk, you know, we train to do the little two-step, side-step, little dance or whatever. Sometimes you go, okay, why are you asking that? And I'm, I'm, if you want to know, I'll tell you. And if it's going to help you in your journey and it's going to help you engage, I mean, that's great. But sometimes you don't answer every question. We, we, we learn that. It's not as if you just, you know, tell them everything. And it's not of as course. if you just, you know, go into the studio and go, hey, my name's Mark. I've got anxiety and I'm treating you here. I hope you don't mind. No, you, <laughs> you, learn, you learn how to how to deal with all these things and, and when to yeah. close. Um, yeah. and, and sometimes it's important not to because you've got to read the room, don't you? And that's how you've got to, you've got to, you've got to engage with the person and know what's relevant for them. It's not your mm. stuff. You know, they don't want to know. And a lot of people don't want to know all about you. They just want to know that you're not going to damage them and that you're going to take them seriously, just listen to them and, and treat them as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to just get into some of the more day-to-day -day for you. You know, I know your, your anxiety has obviously shifted and changed over the years. I think you mentioned things have been a little bit easier with the kind of current working arrangements. But, yeah, I'm just curious, like, you know, for you right now, how does it show up? What are the kind of situations and things that bring on that anxiety the most? And like, when does it impact you the most at the moment at this stage in your life? The thing is, and you just, you touched on it earlier, we can perform, especially with people with anxiety. So, so they get, they, they get it wrong. Because a lot of people get it wrong. They look at me and they go, oh, well, he seems like he's really functioning well. And in fact, at my unofficial book launch, you know, it was supposed to be, so the book came out in March and I had my book launch all organized. That all was canceled. But I had a, a little reading at Better Read Than Dead, which is this wonderful bookstore in Newtown in, in, in Sydney. And a lot of my friends, including my husband, came to that. And mm -hmm. I was chatting and this woman stood up and she said, forgive me, Dr. Cross, I don't want to be rude. But, you know, I've got a 20-year-old daughter at home who won't leave the house with anxiety. And here you are written a book and you're talking, you know, in public and you seem to have it all together. And I, I, I snorted a bit and I went, there's my husband, go and talk to him. And mm -hmm. he stood up and went, yes, trust me, it's not easy and kudos to all the carers out there, right? So we have to accept those things too. So mm -hmm. I'm, I get flaky and even, even before this, Every single time I do something like this, I start getting a bit worked up and then I wonder what I'm going to do and why I'm doing it. And then I go, oh my God, why have I always, and then my, so I start the ruminative thoughts. My adrenaline goes up and I often get headaches. I get sort of migraines. I call them migraines, but actually in retrospect, they're more like panic moments that then lead to migraine types and sometimes I have to go lie down. My sleep has always been affected. I've had night terror since I was four. And it's, it's, it's lying there. And also then waking up once I've gone to sleep and then the thoughts just are there. Boom. Like this brain pack. Um, gut issues. I get psoriasis. Actually, my skin's not looking so great at the moment. So I internalize a lot of stuff. And so I have that sort of withdrawn type of panic that people don't quite get right so i look absolutely serene but meanwhile my insides are squishy mess um and and, and that plays out later so it's like a deferred moment in time and so that yeah. so that's a, so but and also i i react fairly well in in emergencies but sometimes um i feel trapped and and, and it's like a deer in in headlights so those are some of the these symptoms and of course breathing as you just know so i i try and, and focus on my breathing now and yoga's helped that actually but breathing's a real problem for me 
Yeah, I actually um, did a couple of minutes of mindful breathing before this episode. Because for me, even though I've done this, you know, a bunch of times and I'm used to talking to new people and I love chatting to new people, I still feel anxiety before. It's, you know, you're put in a position in which there could be some sort of judgment or evaluation and your mind just starts like going crazy. And, you know, I feel that anxiety and I use strategies to, to manage it myself. So, you know, it's um, obviously different people experience anxiety in different ways and with different intensities. Yeah, so of course, anxiety before uh, performance is fairly common. It's when you get yeah. that anxiety when you don't have anything to, you know, worry about uh, or, you know, prepare for. And that's the most awful thing. So they generalize anxiety. Um, yeah. And especially, so with, I hate it. I lie in bed, especially on my own. I used to house it when I was in South Africa. And of course, you know, some of it is linked to, constantly being hyper aroused and aware of danger in South Africa. But I lie there and the possums come over my tin roof at night and I know it's the possums and I know that it's no humans going to be bashing into my windows, but I cannot stop the thinking and get to sleep. And then of course you start thinking there's something wrong with you and you, the negative self talk happens and all that crap. Um, so you've got to work on that, but mindful breathing does help. And, you know, you develop strategies, don't you, uh, as you say, and you try and work them into your daily routine. Yeah, I think something for me that's been really helpful in the past couple of years um, is, is self-compassion. So just being kind to myself and kind of acknowledging, you know, like, so, I, you know, I, I don't suffer from, I haven't suffered from kind of chronic debilitating anxiety at all. But, you know, this is more just day-to-day -day anxiety, some of that self-doubt that I was mentioning before. But, uh, and sometimes being hard on myself if I, you know, having quite high standards, recovering perfectionist, you know, sort of trying to be compassionate to myself and being accepting of these feelings. That's been really helpful for me. And I was, I was going to ask you actually whether that's something that you have like worked on specifically or your, yeah, you know, your kind of relationship to your, to your feelings and that anxiety. It's a hard, it's a hard one because I'm so, you develop these, you know, you talk about armor, you, you know, the scales come up and you develop these not so great coping strategies and it takes a while but it's always useful and that's partly age is useful right so you with experience and wisdom you, you you're able to sit back and go wow look at how you operated all these years accept and acknowledge try and shift what you can but be kind to yourself. And of course, I say that to my patients all the time. If you're not kind or compassionate to yourself, if you don't look after yourself, you can't look after others. But of course, they look at me sometimes and go, yeah, how's that working for you, Mark? Because they know that I'm a hard taskmaster to myself. I'm constant. Even now, after talking to you, I will be a mess. I'm going, oh my God, I should have answered this properly and I didn't answer this. And, you know, and we're having such a lovely conversation on the one level, you know, all these levels. Um, but definitely looking after myself has got a bit better, um, can be even better. But, you know, I've gone from health anxiety when I was a medical student to now ignoring everything. That's not good in a post-50 man. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you can't do it properly, just avoid, avoid, avoid. And that's not a good overall strategy, trust me. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so constantly do think about that and, you know, I, I, if I if I walk talk to talk the talk, I have to walk the walk, right? So it has to be meaningful, and I and I say this to people all the time, and I have to start saying it to myself and believing it. Mm -hmm. Great. So I know, you know I'm going I'm to let you go off and have your dinner soon, Mark. Thanks so much for your time. I think That's one fine. one last question that I wanted to ask you was around kind of unhelpful narratives about anxiety that, that you, you've come across, um, and, you know, you sort of might have noticed exist in society. So, you know, obviously anxiety as a, as a feeling and experience is, is normal in the sense that we all experience it. But I guess, um, you know, terms like, oh, I'm a bit OCD, for example, uh, are kind of used colloquially um, and... I guess can actually minimize what the impact of having a condition like OCD has on people. So I'm just curious to know what, what your experience of, uh, yeah, these kind of narratives around anxiety has been, maybe how it's affected you personally. Well, there lies the rub, right? So anxiety is 
often not easily recognized as a condition because mm -hmm. as everyone says well doesn't everyone get anxiety and so I, I try and separate that from anxiety provoking moments like preparing for an exam and all that to not having anything to worry about and there's this horrible panic or or moment of anxiety that people have to deal with and so trying to improve the mental health um, literacy um, and certainly COVID, that's a positive thing from COVID. I think people are definitely now more able to understand and accept that's one positive out of it, right? Unfortunately, mm. more people are suffering, so that's not such a great part of it. But in terms of trying to get people to understand that Sure, we all have mood, for instance, we, we have mood issues. So anger, irritability, de even depression is part of maybe uh, somebody's usual existence. That's life, right? But when it becomes so debilitating that you can't function, when it becomes so dreadful that you have difficulty getting out of the bed, of bed in the morning and focusing and managing anything, then it's something that needs treatment and, and ongoing management, right? Also, I've heard some dreadful things, and I probably do the same thing to myself, the negative self-talk that people engage in. And I call them out on it. I say, you would not say the stuff you are saying right now to yourself, to anyone else, would you? A hundred percent, they always say, no, I wouldn't. And so mm -hmm. it's that... It's that, I don't know, trying to get that balance right of acceptance, but knowing that you can actually lead a meaningful, full life despite having something that may just be manageable for most of your life. Those are the sort of things that people find so hard and are so hard on themselves about that I, you know, try and work on with them. Yeah, definitely. It's that kind of, like, like you said, it's that kind of layering on top, isn't it? It's, I've got this feeling, this experience, and I, sh I feel like I shouldn't have this. And what does that make me? And um, yeah, and obviously that can create that kind of vicious cycle. Yes, and you're going to get out of the hamster wheel, as I say, or whatever analogy you want to use. And be and it plays yeah. out in different ways, right? So it's stuff that you try and suppress, stuff that you don't want as part of yourself. I mean, Freud talked about this. You can't hate part of yourself because otherwise it implodes on you or it explodes and it just ruins your inter external life. So you, you have to try and deal with it as best you can without mm -hmm. saying to yourself, oh, get over it. That's, that's not the way forward. Yeah, that's great. That's really, really great kind of um, advice. And I love that analogy of the hamster wheel too. <laughs> um, so just to finish up, Mark, slightly different questions, sort of shifting gears slightly. You know, you're obviously in the kind of later stages of, of your career. What in the next five years, what have you what have you got planned? Where do you think you'll be in sort of five years' time? Wow, 60. I never I never I mean it, it seems so big a number, right? But um as you get closer, it doesn't seem so old. I will be continuing what I'm doing now. So I'm I'm writing another book and uh, never have enough time for that, of course, but I mean, I'm really enjoying that. I'm enjoying mentoring and doing my vodcast, um, you know, like you are now. I, I really enjoy the community angle of things, being, being there to support people and being open and, I don't know, educating. I, I really enjoy that. I love clinical work. But I want to get to a stage where I do less of that and more speaking and, you know, doing other things. Um, but again, that'll be in my 60s. So in the next five years, I'll be the senior psychiatrist where I am now across the two sites, really focusing on inpatient care in the um, private field. And in fact, in my one clinic, I want to really focus on an inpatient, unique trauma um, service for the LGBTQ community. So that's that's quite interesting. Um, 
and already I've admitted quite a few people there and it's and it's something I really want to build on and there's not that many I don't think there's any really in the country so that's 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 quite interesting so being quite focused on specific groups um, and being able to have the I don't know have the wherewithal to do that so that's quite exciting sounds like really really important work well mark thank you so much for your time this evening thanks for your contribution to the field of of mental health you've definitely been inspiring to me and i've really enjoyed this this chat with you this evening and we'll certainly be following you and looking forward to your your next book whenever it comes out Hello folks, just a quick word from me at the end, as I like to do. So I hope you enjoyed that. I had so much fun with Mark there. He's such a lovely guy and as you could probably tell, we had a kind of mutual respect for what we're both doing. Obviously Mark is much more progressed in his career and has achieved lots of things. So for me, it was really amazing to to chat to yet another person who's a bit of a role model for me. One of the reasons I set out to start this podcast was in order to really satisfy a yearning of mine to have these kind of conversations with other healthcare professionals and to do some networking and and really just have conversations with people that perhaps I wouldn't have spoken to otherwise. And it's really been working out as such an amazing project that is satisfying lots of things for me. It's enabling me, as I wanted to, to be able to chat to people like Mark and now with some of the people I've spoken to, there's been ongoing relationships. It's really wonderful. So my advice to anyone who's thinking about doing something like this, if you're listening, then really scratch your own itch. If you fancy doing something in a project that is perhaps a little bit different to what other people are doing, your peers, give it a go. You never know where it's going to end up. So if you like this episode and you've been liking some of my other episodes, then I just ask you to please share the episode with a friend or colleague. And if you really like it and you're listening to this on Apple iTunes or Apple Apple Podcasts, then please leave a review, a genuine, honest review. It will really help spread the word about the podcast. So I hope I'll see you here next time for episode 11. Until then, stay safe and take care.